Oh, I have to. No, no, no. Take take your time, huh? And just, uh, just I the shouldn't thing forget to call to 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 record. <laughs> there we go. Yeah, thanks for that information. Okay. So okay. we'll start in uh, 10 seconds. Okay. You know, I will do the introduction. I will say, great to see you, Ami. Welcome on board. <laughs> and after that, I continue my narrative and the questions, and, and, and you can answer. Welcome to the Borders and Globalization podcast. Welcome to our listeners. I'm speaking from the traditional territory of the Lekwagen peoples in the Selish Sea region. As we know, human history has led to the construction of border systems between different political entities. Human groups have sought to differentiate themselves spatially by boundaries, delimitations, legal conventions, border guards. They have also formed alliances and buffer zones. As we also know, humans belong to the group of primates. And there are other types of borders, borders that exist in the primate and non-human world. In fact, what is sometimes called the animal kingdom reveals many forms of non-human territoriality. This type of phenomenon is observed in mammals as well as in birds, insects, or fish. Today, we are going to talk about non-human borders with Ami Kalen, assistant professor at the University of Victoria and field-based primatologist interested in wild great apes and what it can tell us about hominin evolution using a comparative perspective. Great to see you, Ami. Welcome on board. Thank you, Benjamin. Human borders are instruments for managing relations between different contiguous political entities. They come from a phenomena of contact and encounter. The history of the border is included in the great history of the means of spatial and political differentiations of groups of humans. Some animals have the ability to mentally represent their territory. They memorize itineraries, places, trajectories. These territories are of several types, territory for food, for reproduction, for protection, for sleeping, and they merge for many species. But first of all, Ami, let's start the interview by giving some information about your scientific specialty. What is the object of study of primatology and what are great apes? That's a good question. So, yeah, thanks for the question. Um, I'm a primatologist, as you nicely said in the introduction, and primatology is really the study of primates. So you can consider it sort of um, a branch of biology where biologists kind of specialize in studying non-human primates, but is also a part of anthropology. 
And the reason why it's part of anthropology is because anthropology, which you consider is the study of humans, given that humans are a primate, uh, anything that we can learn about non-human primates to sort of help us better understand the human condition is why primatology is actually historically and traditionally also part of anthropology. Mm-hmm. And then great apes is a special term that we use and is reserved for um, some of the largest primates in the world, which includes ourselves, the gorilla, which is the largest primate in the world. Um, you probably may be familiar with like large silverback gorillas and knowing how large they can get, but also um, the chimpanzee and the chimpanzee's close um, sister species, the bonobo, as well as the um, only Asian great ape, which is the orangutan. Thank you, Ami, for these clarifications and definitions. We know that there can be a risk of anthropomorphism in studies of uh, animal behavior. Studies and some scientific documentaries show us that communication between animals are rich and complex. Some authors believe that the language itself was born from the need to adapt to a new demand, the coordination of joint action. How do chimpanzees communicate with each other? Do the vegetation, the trees, play a role of a medium? Yeah, so that's a good question. And indeed, um, all primate species, just like all other animals, use sort of species-specific signals that they have evolved over time to communicate with one another. And with primates specifically, we've observed that they have really rich vocal repertoires, so vocalizations, different types of calls that they make, as well as gestural repertoires. So this would include... Uh, facial expressions, but also body movements and uh, moving the hands and the arms to try and indicate um, a want or a need or um, also an action or a desire that you want from another individual. So, for example, things like if you want to be groomed, you might put your hand up in a certain way or scratch your body. That's what sometimes chimpanzees do to to indicate a desire to be groomed by another. Uh, So just as with other other animals, and especially um, other kind of social animals, um, chimpanzees and other primates we see have a really rich sort of variety of signals that they can use to communicate with one another. When it comes to the second part of your question regarding the trees, that's an interesting question, um, specifically because uh, chimpanzees interact with trees every day, all the time, mostly because that is their primary source of food. Um, So from a feeding perspective, they're always interacting with trees. They also sleep in trees. They build nests in trees. Um, So a lot of their life and daily activities are centered around the trees. Um, That's why they need trees to survive. At the same time, they also do use them for communication. So one of the most um, common behaviors you might observe um, in wild chimpanzees is something called buttress drumming. And this is where chimps will use their hands and feet and sort of bang on the trunk or the big roots of a tree. And this is sometimes used to kind of communicate long distances with other chimpanzees, um, just for that exactly that purpose that you described, Benjamin, which is, you know, to try and find others in your group, to coordinate, to meet up, to find, um, to meet at a foraging place or a feeding tree, or to just find each other for a grooming session or to travel to with one another. Okay, great. Many thanks, Emmy. 
and of for, of course they have a great knowledge of their ecosystems humans like to compare themselves with animals their strength their intelligence research in ethology has shown that some animals can use tools and respond to complex problems my question is this one do great wild apes like chimpanzees use tools for example stones or wooden sticks i read somewhere that chimpanzees can throw rock rocks to impress rivals and maybe even mark a territory yeah so <laughs> so first part definitely um some non-human primates do use tools and chimpanzees are remarkable in that regard in that they use probably the most variable um, number and sorts of tools. So they are quite proficient at using stone tools in the wild, but also sticks, leaves, forms of vegetation to create things like, um, you know, they could create sometimes sponges, like leaf sponges to, to take water out of a tree hole. They will use sticks to, um, fame, to take out, um, Uh, to put sticks through a big hard termite nest to get the larvae of the termite to, to eat the termites or to fish ants out of a nest. Um, they will also use stones very famously for cracking nuts. There are some populations of wild chimpanzees that very regularly and often use stone tools of different sizes to crack open hard encased nuts. And they will also sometimes use wooden tools like strong um wooden hammers to also do the same. And in a population that I've studied, um, we've also seen chimpanzees using stone tools by throwing them at trees. And so this might be the latter thing that you were referring to in your, um, in your question. Uh, we've called this accumulative stone throwing. And it's different from what we observe, generally speaking, which is in other chimpanzees and kind of chimpanzees that you might encounter in the wild, they're quite happy to throw things. They like to throw stuff, especially during a male display where he wants to kind of throw heavy things around, uh, make a big ruckus and show that he's very strong and um, capable. But the cumulative stone throwing behavior is different from this in that we observe chimpanzees, um, usually still adults, but they come to certain trees. And at those trees, they pick up rocks and throw, throw them at them those trees. And they do this repeatedly and different individuals will come and do the same thing. And we find that in the landscape, this is only like a handful of trees that actually have this kind of behavior. And if you are walking in the field and you want to find these trees, it's very easy to see because unlike most of the trees you will see around you, you will all of a sudden find a location that has a tree that has been battered with scars from mm -hmm. being repeatedly hit with stones. And it is unavoidable to, to miss that. You can very clearly see it because the tree repeatedly heals its wounds over those um, scars. And you also then, of course, see rocks um, at the base of the tree or sometimes even piled up into the hollow. And so this is actually a point of my research at the moment. I have a master's student that just finished looking at... Um, kind of an analyzing kind of the data, looking at where, where are these sites distributed. Um, and so far, it looks like uh, we're finding evidence that these sites are actually located in places that are um, significant to the chimpanzees in that they provide um, stable resources like food trees or um, nesting sites where they sleep. 
Um, and we still have to look even further at um, trying to better understand the patterns of use of the chimpanzees in this landscape. So trying to see like where are they moving and then how are those sites um, located in relation to that movement. And that's still to come. <laughs> okay, great. Uh, thank you for this answer. Okay. Um, now let's move on the topic of internal boundaries. <clears throat> Can we speak of political or social boundaries within the same group of chimpanzees? Yeah, I, I really liked this question, I have to say. Um, it made me uh, think a little bit more deeper about how I understand, for example, chimpanzee society. And I'm not sure if you're going to be satisfied with this answer, but I'm going to give it a go. So I think that, yes, you can speak of political and social boundaries. Social is easier in that this is kind of what we, um, as an animal ethologist, it's very easy to think of a social boundary for animals because we usually use the social group as our unit, right? So a social group would can be considered of like all the chimpanzees that uh, affiliate with, with one another in a given territory. And that is the group or the community we use this, this term specifically for chimpanzees. Um, but then of course, within that social boundary, you do have political boundaries in a sense. Um, I'm not sure if boundaries is the right word. Maybe you're the better expert to tell me about that. But I thought of the fact that within a chimpanzee community or society, you do have different individuals, different personalities, and different friendships and alliances that occur. So you will very clearly see that some individuals, um, you know, spend more time together, groom more together, uh, share food together are more likely to do certain activities together, um, while others will be maybe on the periphery or will be more likely to be found with other individuals. Um, and in that sense, these kind of alliances and uh, the changing and shifting coalitions that we see within a chimpanzee society do in some ways reflect what we see in kind of human societies of like political um, groups or political societies. Um, at least in from my kind of naive viewpoint of, of politics. <laughs> um, so I'm not sure if you agree with that, but I do think that within chimpanzee society, we do have this complexity of, particularly when it comes to males, um, because males are sort of the, um, the male hierarchy is sort of the, the main thing that, the main social aspect that kind of regulates a chimpanzee society, although females are also important, but for, um, additional reasons. Um, we find then that within, among the males and this um, kind of navigating this male hierarchy, politics becomes integral and really important. And so the personalities of individual males and how they navigate and create friendships or forge new bonds and new alliances is very significant. And sometimes it can lead to them being more successful and getting higher rank you know, climbing up the ladder, so to speak. Um, or sometimes if they don't make the right alliances or they don't make the right decisions or they annoy people or, uh, sorry, other chimpanzees, they might actually become, go lower in the ladder. And in that sense, it is very much um, a political kind of atmosphere in, in this chimp society. Yeah, very interesting to hear all of that, Hami. 
Uh, it's therefore clear for me that these groups of chimpanzees form complex societies with truly visible forms of power. Many uh, authors have drawn parallels and also differences between human territoriality and non-human territoriality. Experts on the field of ethology specify that certain non-human species are more or less territorial according to their social organization or their preoccupation at the time. That some species are not territorial, like the snakes. Some other species, like the cats, have rather temporal territories, which they, they could defend it only during a given period. In the case of the Siberian tiger, this tiger has networks of territories over a long distance between which they can move. In the world of chimpanzees, are there spatial boundaries between distinct groups? Does it have uh, territorial marks of one kind or another? Mm, that, yeah, it's a very good question. So chimpanzees are highly territorial, which means that it does come with them um, not sharing their territory uh, with others, with other groups, and they actually defend those territories. But when it comes to actually delineating that territory, it is gets a bit fuzzy. So we can clearly always sort of see usually a core component to their territory. And then um, outside of that will be sort of the boundary area or the area that might have sometimes other groups visiting periodically. So you could imagine, for example, uh, there's a certain fruit trees in the boundary area of the of the territory. And at times you might find that other groups might come there. Um, so this can be an area where there's maybe a, a little bit of overlap with another, another group's territory. And this is why then the chimpanzees actually themselves behave slightly differently when they're in the periphery of the territory. They're much more vigilant um, because if they were to encounter, uh, like whether vocally or visually, observe and see and encounter these other groups, then that would result in usually a fight of some kind um, and some kind of intergroup encounter is what we what we call it. Um, and so what's interesting is that as um, a human observer, you often try to look to see, okay, if physically around me in the landscape, can I tell that I'm now in the periphery of the territory? Um, for example, if you didn't already know the, the mo group's movements well, and it's hard to tell. There's not that there's like a clear, you know, indication in the landscape that you have now reached the end of the territory. It is only from your um, uh, observations and continued, um, like, uh, usually we use, like, for example, GPS, and you can see the movement of the chimpanzees. So you know that they don't frequently come in this area as often as they do in their core area. Um, and the thing that actually um, then therefore tells you usually that you're in the periphery of the territory or at the boundary of the territory is the chimpanzee's behavior because that is what changes and um, that tells you that okay here this is a place where they are vigilant they are careful they're monitoring um, their surroundings much more and that's usually because they're outside of the safety of their core area and they need to be more um, need to be more alert does that make sense Yes. 
Thank you for this answer, Amy. Uh, as you said, maybe territories of chimpanzees could be seen as a space, but this space is built by behaviors. Huh? Mm -hmm. It's the key element yeah. is behavior. Huh? Yeah. Uh, scientific research has revealed that groups of chimpanzees can split into two. Why can groups of chimpanzees fragment? Yeah, this is um this is where those political uh, boundaries can come into play. For example, so groups are communities of chimpanzees that get very large. For example, so there are communities that have gone up to two hundred individuals. For example, wow. you can imagine in there if you have so many individuals, that means you have very many males and very much different personalities and different yeah. alliances and coalitions emerging. And in that kind of political atmosphere is where you can get sort of um, this intense competition with one another that can drive this vision of uh, of a group. Um, mostly because if you think about it, you know, the males are all competing for access to females to 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 create offspring and access to the best feeding spots, you know, the best um, food resources and sleeping spots. And so when you have such a large group and you have this intense competition that then arises, this is where you're likely to observe this kind of fission of where a group will then split into um, more than one uh, group. Okay, thanks, Amy. Uh, some authors have said that an animal does not defend a space, but it defends itself. As I said before, and, and you confirmed that, Territory is not a space, finally. It's it's more behavior. Your last answer brings me to the question of the relationships between different groups of chimpanzees. Are there territorial conflicts, wars between groups of chimpanzees for the control of, of a space or, or a territory and, and, and its resources? And why do chimpanzees not tolerate the presence of other groups? Yeah, so <clears> that we have this, um, there's something in the chimpanzee psyche that is very much um, uh, a psychology that we would maybe refer to as um, sort of an in-group versus out-group psychology, um, meaning that they are highly territorial. And with that territoriality comes this um, um, desire to defend our group from others. And usually what we think as primatologists is that is motivated by having access to their stable, their territory, that space comes with access to stable resources, sleeping resources, food, and also space for supporting a certain size of a community, a size of a group. And so that is what they are defending when they are yeah. in fact, you know, encountering another group because if you were to not defend it as a chimpanzee, then that group would have free availability to come into your territory and take those resources. And so even though we've said that, yeah, you can't really see the territory, I mean that as a, as a human observer, I cannot see it. But as a chimpanzee, it is very clear that they know where the start of their territory or the end of their territory is. As I said, they start to act differently. They yeah. um, behave differently. And that's what gives me the indication that I'm at the edge of their territory. Yeah, yeah. Um, so 
they do in fact have these territorial conflicts. They have these intergroup conflicts. And we've seen through um, long-term data that when they have these intergroup conflicts, um, you know, losers and winners, that's a real consequence to that behavior. Um, anyone that wins an intergroup contest has the ability to perhaps in, enlarge their territory and then be able to support more individuals in their territory or be able to feed at preferred um, feed, feed fruit sites or something like this. And so that's a real consequence to having your territory become smaller or larger. Um, and so there is something worth fighting for in that sense. Um, at least um, evolutionary speaking, we can see this and that makes sense to us. Um, and then on top of it, there's that intergroup conflict, which is just that when other chimps see other chimpanzees that are not in their group, it is, uh, or even hear them, if they even hear them vocalize, there is an immediate um, response to be hostile and to protect and defend your territory. So they are very close to the human species. Huh? <laughs> that's that's not yes. a, that's not a lie. We are all primates. Huh? <laughs> yes, that's. I, I can also add something though. There is something that helps us to sort of understand the nuances of the human condition in the fact that um, although chimpanzees are highly territorial and has, as I've described, quite um, hostile to any other group members, the sister species of chimpanzees, the panpaniscus, so which is the bonobo, it's a little bit less under, less well understood and less well studied because it has only lives in the Democratic Republic of Congo. But there are now um, decades of, of studies now out on them. And from what we see in the bonobo is completely different to the chimpanzee, wow. even though they're so highly related. Uh, so, for example, bonobos will quite happily spend time with other other bonobo groups. They will even um, feed with them, sleep with them. They have a very less, they're much less territorial. They don't have these kinds of um, hostile, immediate um, impression towards um, strangers or outgroup members. And on top of it, they also have a society that is much, um, it's much different than chimpanzees in that females can be co-dominant with males. Wow. And so there is um, something else entirely going on when it comes to bonobo societies and even bonobo politics, because the females have kind of a higher political voice as well in that sense. And so even though within the pan genus, you have chimpanzees and um, bonobos, that are both equally as closely related to humans as we are to them, um, suggests that you know when it comes to our evolutionary history and the way that humans are, we see also the good and the bad in humans, right? We see the <laughs> yes. we see the peaceful and the war in humans, and we can also see that traced into the pan genus. Wow, amazing! Thank you for sharing that. Uh... One of the areas of research in primatology concerns the question of the origins of mutualist cooperation. And the groups of chimpanzees living in the wild provide proof of this existence of collective action, particularly in terms of borders and the edges of territories. Some authors have even spoken of border patrol, what is this phenomenon? Yeah, this is a very interesting. And I've been privileged enough to spend time with um, wild chimpanzees and to be able to see this myself. And I can tell you it is a highly conspicuous behavior. 
And this is what I actually was referring to when I said that, you know, as a human observer, when you are at the territory of a chimpanzee, at the periphery of a territory of a chimpanzee, because the chimpanzees start to act different. And what chimpanzees will actively do, um, and this is, I should make a little disclaimer that this is quite common for forest living chimpanzees, but some, some chimpanzees that live in like bigger kind of savanna woodland landscapes, we have yet to really see clear evidence of um, border patrol. So this might represent a kind of a different um, challenge to them. Uh, I can talk about that later if you want, but within a forest, what we see is that very clearly chimp chimpanzees will all of a sudden sort of coordinate their uh, behaviors. So you might see uh, all of a sudden an alpha or a high ranking male kind of go bipedal, stand up on, two, on his hind, two hind legs, look around, and then all of a sudden fall really silent and then go back knuckle walking on all fours, um, very silently, deliberately moving slowly, not making too much sound, scanning the landscape, the environment, as if listening and stopping to listen and looking around, being very vigilant and alert. And other chimpanzees, um, the adults particularly and usually, particularly adult males, will fall in line behind him. Wow. And almost as if they're forming somewhat of like a, a defense line of sorts, they walk kind of in unison, um, kind of synchronizing their movements, going very slowly. So if the one at the at the head of the line stops, then all like a dominoes, the others will all stop um, to also listen and, and look, look out. And why they're doing this is because they are being vigilant, because they want to hear or know if check if anyone else, any other groups are ter are in inside the territory there, so that they can then respond if they need to. Um, and yeah, and then so this is the really that border patrol phenomenon, and sometimes it can take up to hours. And chimpanzees will also just do this periodically, so they don't necessarily have to be suspicious or hear something in the edge of their territory. They may just say you know, or decide that we want to go to a fruit tree, maybe like in the border patrol area or in the border area, or, or they may not, they may not decide anything and instead just patrol and then come back to the core of the territory. Uh, so it's really an activity that requires this kind of group coordination and commitment to be present, help with the, this kind of defense. Because of course, when they do these kinds of border patrols, they're often more likely to meet a stranger group, right? And then that will result in a fight if they actually meet um, meet them. Um, so of course it takes some bravado, it takes some strength and courage, and you have to also have trust in your um, compatriots, your, um, your other group members, that they will stay and fight with you and not run away. Wow, thank you for sharing all this data. I mean, it's very interesting. And <laughs> do you think the, the first chimpanzee of the line is the alpha male or not no not always not always and it can and... also you can think of this as can also be a great way it's usually high-ranking males but it's also a great way if um, one wants to think strategically and anthropomorphize which i think <laughs> I, which it's very difficult not to do when you are staring at chimpanzees in the wild um 
it's a great way to show that you are a, a potentially good alpha for the future. Uh, yeah. Okay. To build your reputation, your status in the group. Yeah, of course. And could we see this uh, border patrol phenomenon in the Bonombo uh, system? As far as I know, no one has um, reported border patrols in Bonobos. And that kind of goes in line with what we see with Bonobos, that when they see other group members, they seem to just often actually celebrate and <laughs> feed That's together. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, amazing difference. Yeah. Uh, the word border in international law means territorial delimitation, which comes from the word limit, which itself is borrowed from the Latin limes, which means path bordering a field, path between two fields, a limit, a border. I speak of this uh, etymology, thinking of the phenomenon of the border patrol phenomenon, the collective alignment of different chimpanzees of the same group form a kind of, of surveying of space. They co-produce a kind of common path where they can better hear, as you said, and observe what is happening in other territories, while they are also marking their own territories by this alignment. So how this phenomenon of border patrol is illustrative and explanatory of an organized collective action of chimpanzees. What are the characteristics of this collective action? You, you gave us some details, but yeah. could you expand a little bit more? Yeah, I think so. I think in the sense that it is a collective action because it coordinates their behavior. Um, it's coordinating the behavior of multiple individuals to actively help with the defense of the territory. And something, so like, as I mentioned, that they usually synchronize their movements, they synchronize, um, for example, if one individual smells something on the floor to try and sometimes detect uh, a potential intruder, other individuals following behind will also go and pick up the same thing and smell it as well. Mm -hmm. um, so in this sense, like very much synchronizing and coordinating movements um, so that you are um, basically representing the group as a whole rather than, you know, becoming these kind of separate individuals. And, and that, in a sense, is used to then also show the strength of the group in case there is a an encounter with strangers. Uh, another thing you said, which is like you mentioned limis and that this means actually a path between two fields. I was thinking that, um, you know, what we do see when chimpanzees use a territory, they often do prefer certain paths and routes. And um, I think this is true of many different animals. But of course, when it comes to territorial animals, then you can imagine that although we are not sometimes that great at seeing it, I have been able to detect that there are certain places and paths sort of that become evident in the in the forest of the routes that they prefer to take. And those paths in themselves, I never thought about it this way, but in a sense can be used to indicate that this is you know, the end of our territory or something like this. Um, so animal paths, just from the treading and use of an area, similar to what humans do, you know, if they're using an area that you create, you end up just creating a path um, by consequence of that use, um, is also, in a sense, what we also observe in chimpanzees and animals like this, that especially do this type of monitoring of their territory. Amazing. Thank you, Amy. Uh... 
I, 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 know, I now have a more general question about the relationship between humans and non-humans in relation to our topic. What can the study of behavioral flexibility in wild great apes about hominin evolution tell us? Oh, that's a lot. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> that's a big question. So I guess, um, so one of the reasons why I sort of, one of my big specialties, I guess, is behavioral flexibility. And I focus in on chimpanzees mostly because they show a lot of behavioral flexibility. And what I mean by that is that um, if you think of certain animal species or the majority of animal species that you probably know, most individuals of that species are capable of doing sort of the same thing. And most groups that you are um, animal groups you would encounter would have the same types of behaviors, same types of um, actions that they do. Um, and you would not observe any kind of variation across different groups or different, um, uh, yeah, across different groups, for example, or populations. And what we see, in fact, in like chimpanzees, and also um, other primates, some other primates, is that we see this like intense ability to adapt and change their behaviors in response to their environmental challenges or even social challenges. And so what that, why that's important from a human perspective and understanding human evolution is because of all the species that have ever existed, we are the best at being able to be flexible and to be able to change and adapt to external conditions. We have become so good at that, that we have made and actually changed those external conditions to better suit us. Mm -hmm. We use technology, shelters, clothing. We can make the world work for us. Yeah. Whereas animals are still usually at the mercy of, you know, of the world around them. And chimpanzees are maybe somewhere kind of showing us the beginnings of that ability to show us how they can actually change or work with the environment to make it better adaptive for them. Um, things like, for example, the tool use we talked about, being able to use tools so that you can better extract resources from the environment that is presented to you or that you are in. Um, or, for example, if you have a, a very dry season or very uh, drought where there's less water, being able to use things like sponges um, to take water out of tree holes if you, um, you know, are living in a, a dry environment. Or, for example, we have chimpanzees that live in such dry places that they actually will just go and sit in pools of water and relax and cool off that way. While, generally speaking, other chimpanzees would be kind of terrified to go into water. Yeah. Um, and to sit in water because they can't swim. So they generally have this hydrophobia of, of um, water. Um, but and this is what I mean by that given like different kind of environmental constraints or challenges, we observe the same species, this is all the same species, changing their behavior, adapting their behavior, so that they can be better kind of suited and um, adapted to their environment that they're in. Great, I mean, thank you very much for all your informations. Um, we have come to the end of our discussion. Um, I would like to speak a little bit about uh, some authors speak about uh, chimpanzees cultures. Could, could we identify a culture, the term culture? Is it appropriate to describe what is going on between chimpanzees? What do you think? Yes, definitely. Um, I Basically, when I talked about sort of these different behaviors or that we might observe in different groups of chimpanzees, 
that is essentially a form of culture because what you're finding is that these are different ways of different groups or societies of the same species that they have found to live their lives. So they have you know, social customs in, in a way, and which is essentially what we mean when we talk about cultures in humans, whether those social customs are how we eat or what we eat or um, how we um, groom or which types of uh, gestures or vocalizations we make or certain types of communicative actions um, or other behaviors or certain tool use behaviors. Uh, these are all types of ways in which chimpanzee cultures can be different across groups. Um, and, in, and in fact, I think when it comes to non-human primates, chimpanzee cultures are perhaps the richest example of culture in the non-human domain. And so this is also one of the um, main reasons why myself and along with many other colleagues, we have been arguing that we need to actually protect some of this cultural diversity that we see in chimpanzees. Um, because as these populations are actually drastically threatened in the wild due to habitat destruction and um, uh, mostly habitat destruction due to many reasons, um, often, uh, you know, so forces that are more uh, global than local, actually. Um, and I mentioned already the need for chimpanzees to rely on trees. They need to have at least some trees in order to survive. Um, this is where we are seeing that these low populations are decimation of populations in some areas is also coinciding with the loss of uh, behavioral and cultural diversity. And if we as humans want to kind of protect our evolutionary kind of past, our evolutionary history, to maybe perhaps better understand where we come from and our origins, uh, one of the things that we should think about very seriously is trying to then protect and preserve that cultural diversity that is present, and that is only present in the wild in these natural populations of chimpanzees. Um, so it, we're basically trying to make the argument that this is another primary reason to um, you know, try to get uh, attention, conservation actions to focus on protecting um, many of these different populations of wild chimpanzees. Thank you, Ami. Uh, my last question is linked with what just you just said. Uh, last question, but not least. Uh, unfortunately, as you said, uh, we know that the habitats of great apes and many other animals are threatened with the extension of urban areas, cultivated or industrialized areas. Uh, how to better protect group of primates? You, you spoke about, you just spoke about conservation. Mm. Should human governments enforce a type of, I don't know, a, a fence of a barrier, but a good one between the yeah. human world and the non-human habitats? in order to protect yeah. the populations and, and their landscape and their uh, life. Well, I can say that is actually the way that conservation was done uh, back in the 70s. Um, you know, the people thought that that was the only way to protect the non-human world was to put a fence around it. But of course, we know now that that is a terrible way to protect the natural world. And that in most cases, it's not going to work and it will result only in creating greater conflict and also unhealthy populations. When you think about animals, they don't have these fences in, the, in nature. They need to move. A healthy group of chimpanzees, for example, requires that females leave the group and disperse to go to other populations. 
that's how you keep a population healthy, viable, genetically, as well as, um, yeah, ensuring that, you know, you don't get these kind of things like inbreeding depression and stuff like that that can happen if you have a fenced off population that can no longer move. Plus, of course, you have animals, the larger the animal, the more space it needs and needs to be able to move. And then that becomes just not possible or really to um, to enforce such a, a fence-like boundary. On top of it, um, usually these types of um, protected areas, you can call them, require then a huge investment in law enforcement in order to actually even be useful. Because if you don't have a protected area that is actually enforced, um, then it's essentially not a useful protected area in general, um, because it, the boundaries or the fences can be easily um, uh, you know, uh, compromised. And so what we're finding nowadays is that we kind of have to grapple with the idea that, in fact, many of these places that we consider wild do already have humans in them yeah, and well. have had humans in them for centuries. Um, and so what is perhaps a better way forward and what is, I think, the, the best way forward is to rather than enforcing, um, you know, a non-human human divide, rather trying to understand these kind of shared landscapes that humans and non-humans share and to find ways in which we can help kind of actually local populations that are often usually also suffering in, in some of these areas where we see non-human primates. Um, just given the geographical spread in the places, the tropics, and for example, where where they're often found, um, and to find ways in which, you know, we can kind of find coexistence and peaceful sharing of landscapes, so that we can optimize human livelihoods, but also um, biodiversity and including primate conservation. And I think this is really this kind of compromise is really the only way forward. Okay, thanks, Ami. Thanks for this message of. We humans needs to make more efforts. Finally, even if we can think that humans have certain capacities specific to themselves, we can also reverse the observation. Some animals also have specific types of skills. For example, the fascinating and mysterious one of grasping the perception of the Earth's magnetic field, or the one using a system of acoustic orientations like echolocations for the bats. In short, it appears that humans still have to make great efforts to understand biodiversity on a planetary scale and the inextricable knot of all living species and the phenomenon of life in general. Thank you very much, Ami Kalan, for participating in our podcast series. It was a very great discussion, very instructive about non-human borders and bordering phenomenon. Thank you very much for your participation, Ami. Thank you. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. This was the Borders and Globalization podcast. Thank you for your attention and see you soon for the next issue. Bye-bye.